0: A slide towards the end, David since you weren't here earlier I'll, I'll cue you for it so um, Exodus chapter two you're about to hear me attempt to preach the fastest sermon you've probably ever heard me preach. <laughs> we'll see. All right, Exodus chapter two starting in verse twenty three Lord, we ask you this morning that as we get into your word, um, as we examine it, Lord, that um, we would allow our minds to be transformed by it, to be renewed, and Lord, that as a result, our hearts would be changed, that we would recognize who you are as our God, that we would rightly exalt you as our King, and that we would live joyously under Your authority, under Your rule and blessing. That we would be thankful for the work that You did among the Jews, bringing them out of Egypt. The work that we see early on, that we see culminate or be fulfilled in Christ. Lord, that as we look at that grand story, that we would understand better who You are and how it is that You've worked. And Lord, that we would worship You rightly as a result. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about how after great sin on the part of man. After great sin on the part of man, God came to Abraham and graciously promised to save all the nations through him. If you haven't been here for this series, um, then what you've missed is we've been talking about this idea that God created man to establish for himself a kingdom. And we Defined God's kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's how we defined it. And God started the kingdom with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he put them in his place, the garden. They were his people and they were under his rule and blessing. And they violated his rule. They disobeyed him. And as a result of their disobedience, they were kicked out of his place and they were no longer his people until he came and redeemed them. And the nations started from them. And they fell into sin, deep sin, which eventually led to The flood. We've heard of Noah and the flood. And God restarted, in a sense, with Noah and his family. And again, the nations grew. And as they grew, they became sinful. And they turned to self exaltation instead of the exaltation of the Lord. And the Lord again judged them and scattered them across the earth. And then he came in his mercy and his grace to a man named Abraham. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And what is absolutely astounding to me is that he made a covenant with Abraham to bless all the peoples, all the nations of the earth through him, through his seed. All the nations that had just sinned against God, God actively went and pursued, making a covenant to save them. And we see that continue to be fulfilled as Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac being the son of whom the covenant continues through or the promise continues through. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the promise continues through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons through multiple different women. He wasn't a really good guy. And as Jacob has all of these sons, God continues the promise through them, specifically or most specifically through Judah who would be the tribe that the king would come from, the king we know as David, and then through whose house Jesus, the great king of all things, would come. What happened in the midst of all of this promise-keeping on God and bringing it down to the family is the 12 sons of Jacob, the brothers, decided to turn against one of their brothers named Joseph. And they decided they were going to, Basically, sell Joseph into slavery to Egypt. So they turned Joseph over into slavery to Egypt. Joseph was um, there as a slave for many years. He rose to prominence. And interestingly, when he rose to prominence in Egypt, his brothers were in the promised land in Canaan. They fell fell into a time of famine. And so they had to come to Egypt to get help. And when they got to Egypt to get help, who did they have to come to for help? Their brother. And their brother helped them. In other words, they intended something for evil and God knew all along he was going to save them from their own, through their own evil act. Think of that. They made an evil act in which God used to extend grace and mercy to them and save them. And so he saved them. And now all of Israel was living in the land of Egypt where Exodus picks up is 400 plus years later. And where is Israel still? They're still in Egypt. In other words, they had all moved to Egypt through Joseph. This people of the promise, who were promised to be God's people in God's place or land, under God's rule and blessing, were now all in Egypt. 400 years had passed. Joseph had died. The kings of Egypt or the pharaohs of Egypt had completely forgotten about him. And about the kindness that the Pharaoh previous to them had shown to Joseph and to the Jews. And they turned against the Jews and we see that in Exodus chapter 1. Look there real quickly. Exodus chapter 1. It's actually the scenario in the first two chapters. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Hear that? They put the Jews into slavery. This begs a question to me. If these are the people of promise, if these are the people who God has made a covenant with, Why did God lead them into Egypt and leave them in Egypt to be oppressed by the Egyptians? Why did God take his people and put them in the middle of suffering? These are the people that he wants to bless and to bless all the nations through them. Yet he put them in slavery. He put them in a land in which they would suffer. Why? Why does a loving and gracious God allow this kind of suffering to come to his people? You know, I can give you the answer that seems easy. Um, Biblically, it's true seems kind of trite when i say it i want to flesh it out a little bit more but the greatest blessings oftentimes come out of the furnace of affliction the greatest blessings often come through suffering sometimes we see that truth in the immediate state see a great blessing come through suffering giving an immediate one your wife giving birth she suffers greatly does she not and at the end of that, great blessing. And you wonder, why did she suffer, have to suffer so? And then you have this blessing and you're thankful. And you, and I know in my wife's case, it was all worth it. I didn't know how it could possibly be worth it. But when I watched her go through labor and thought to myself, surely this woman will die tonight. <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> As I watched her go through it and this baby came out, and they put the baby in her arms, and she opened a Dr. Pepper, because that's what she'd been waiting to have. <laughs> she even brought him in her ice chest, cold, ready. It's part of her kit, right? She, <laughs> she popped open, because she, had, she wasn't allowed to have caffeine for a while. She pops open her Dr. Pepper and sits there drinking looking at this baby. And she goes, I could have another one. <laughs> you could do what? I don't even know how your body did that. And why you would ever want to do it again. But she looked at this baby and knew this was a great blessing. And it was worth the suffering to have this great blessing. It's an immediate sort of thing. Sometimes we see it in an immediate sense in our lifetimes. I'll give you the example of Joseph. Joseph must have wondered Lord, why did you let my brothers sell me into slavery? Why did you put me in this prison in Egypt for trying to be honorable and stay away from Potiphar's wife when she offered herself to me sexually? Why did you put me in this situation? Only to find out at some point in his own life, he found out why. So he would be in the right place at the right time so that God could exalt him and save his people through him. He actually got to see why. In my mind, while it didn't happen that day, it wasn't instantaneous. The fact that he knew why he suffered at the end of his life is an immediate, in a sense, picture. Because you know what? Sometimes we never see the truth of why God did something. Never see it. What about the Jews that lived after Joseph died, after the Pharaohs had forgotten about about him, Who were under slavery, who died and never saw Moses come and save them. They must have wondered why. Why have you put us here? They never got to see the big picture of it all. And we wonder what God is doing and why He's doing it. We become indignant or confused when we can't see the whole picture. We think to ourselves, how could a loving God allow this to happen to me? We're like children who are angry with their parents for spanking them or for not allowing them to have what they want. We can't understand why our parents would take something we think is good away from us and then tell us, this is best for you. We think, how could God allow me or my loved one to get cancer? How could he allow me to have my marriage fall apart? How could he leave me in this terrible job? How could he allow my spouse to die or my children to die? What we need to understand is that God sees the big picture in a manner that we often don't. We see a very narrow piece of the picture, and we think that our conclusion about how things should be is the right conclusion. The fact is we're often wrong. We don't often know what's best. We know what reality is, And we think it should be different. We often never know why it wasn't. Sometimes a parent loses a child and never knows why. I sometimes think of all God's acts in history. Think of it like this. Everything he has done is doing and will do as painting this kind of incredible picture of His glorious love and grace for mankind. And it's a picture that we're often those standing. Picture this giant painting. We're often those standing up right next to a little corner of it with our noses right up to it. We can only see this much of it. And we think, He's not doing it right. I'm unable to see the whole thing and I scream out, I would do it differently. I could do it better. That's not the way to paint this picture. Why? Why do we rage against the painting? Against our circumstances? Against God's sovereign hand working in our lives? Why? You know why we do it? Because we don't trust the painter. Hear that? We don't trust God's sovereign work in our lives. We think we could do it better. Isn't that true? When what we need to do is stand looking at the painting of God's story and say this. I can't see everything you're doing. But I know it's good. And I know it's good because you're good. You've shown yourself to be good. You've demonstrated your overwhelming graciousness to me. So I trust you. I rejoice in you. Now look, I'm not saying that we should pretend circumstances and sufferings are not difficult. I'm not suggesting that in the least. I am saying that we should trust the Lord of our circumstances and our suffering. This morning as we look at Exodus, I want you to see a picture that God started painting with them and that we even see more clearly than they did. And I want you to see who God is in Exodus. Who is this great painter? Who is this great king? In whose kingdom we've, into whose kingdom we've been called. Who is He? And as you see Him more clearly, I think you'll trust Him more because you'll know who He is. You know, when we were in Genesis, we said that this God was a God who created us graciously, who saved us graciously, who was merciful to us, who made us promises. Now in Exodus, we're going to learn, as we look at the story, really three more things about God I want to look at today. About who He is. So today I want to look briefly at the story of Exodus, and I want to look at three things you learn about who God is. So you can trust your King, you can rejoice in Him. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 23, where I started reading this morning. The people of Israel are in slavery and they're crying out to the Lord and the Lord remembers them and His covenant with them and He wants to free them or deliver them. And we see this story of a God who wants to deliver His people from slavery. He wants to bring them to freedom as their Redeemer. Look at Exodus 3.1. We'll see how God comes to Moses in this situation. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. To look at God. That's the right response, by the way. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. And the Jebusites and now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me And I have also seen the oppression with which the egyptians oppress them Come I will send you pharaoh you to pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of israel out of egypt But moses said to god who am I that I should go to pharaoh and bring the children of israel out of egypt And he said I will be with you doesn't even answer his question. Who am I? God doesn't say, you're a great guy, Moses. You have great skills. He says, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Here's the story. Moses gets this command from God to go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh... I want to take all the Jews, all your slaves, and I want to leave and and have them worship God. In fact, God has commanded that you let his people go. In other words, Moses comes before the most powerful leader in the world at the time, equivalent to or greater than the President of the United States in that world setting. And he appears before him as a priest of God, as a prophet of God. And he stands before the most powerful leader in the world and says to him, I want to take the base of your economic system and leave. Worship God. God has just said that you're to let your entire economy go in the tank so we can take these people and leave to go worship him. And you need to obey. Now, can you hear... Or think about how in Moses' head, this demand seems crazy. And that's exactly how Pharaoh treated it. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Pharaoh becomes very angry and says, no. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Bad response, by the way. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The Pharaoh doesn't believe in this God of the Jews. There's no intention of obeying him. So God begins to demonstrate his power. He wants to demonstrate to Pharaoh clearly I am the God of all things, I'm the God of the creation. There are no other gods besides me. You better obey. But Pharaoh does not. He stubbornly refuses. So God sends 10 plagues. You guys have heard of these, right? 10 plagues. And we read about them and we see a pattern every time. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Pharaoh this. This plague is coming. Warn him. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Pharaoh this. This plague is coming. Pharaoh doesn't listen. The plague comes. He appeals to Moses to remove it. God removes the plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Over and over and over again, we see this happen for nine plagues. Then we come to the 10th plague. This plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn son. Listen, the death of the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. Think of that. Moses warns him the angel of the Lord is going to descend and he's going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. So let the people go. And Pharaoh won't. And so God does. But what's interesting is we see in the midst of this something that God begins a picture of that's amazing, which is that He says to the Jews, if you want to save your children, then you take a lamb and slaughter it and eat it. And you need to put the blood of that lamb on your doorposts. And the bl- every doorpost, every household that has that blood on it, I will pass over. I will not kill the firstborn son in that home. That meal that they had that night that they had is what the Jews call Passover. It's what eventually Jesus uses to start communion. That's the meal that Jesus is having with the disciples when communion takes place. It's having the Passover meal. It's put the blood of the lamb. And you know what he says to them? You can go and invite anybody you want to the house and anyone who will come into your house. I will protect them also. After the 10th plague hit and took out the firstborn sons throughout Egypt, Pharaoh let the people go. He said, all right, that's enough. And he let them go. They left and on their way out, as they were getting down the road, Pharaoh decided, no way. I'm bringing them back. And so he chases them down. And they come to the Red Sea. They don't know what to do. And so God tells Moses strike your staff he does the Red Sea parts they go through the Red Sea and as Pharaoh's army comes in he drowns them drowns the whole army so the Jews go through this water and then they're in the wilderness wandering for 40 years getting manna bread from heaven from God and as they're wandering through the forest or through the wilderness God leads them to a mountain and on that mountain God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments you guys are familiar with. God also gave them a sacrificial system. After He gives them the law, He says, I want you to build a tabernacle and I want you to start sacrificing animals there to make atonement. I will dwell in that tabernacle, but the only way you'll be able to approach me, to have a relationship with me, to draw, is, to draw near to me, is if i draw near to you and the way i draw near to you is through a sacrifice and you have to provide it this is a summary of the book of exodus in fact i could you could break it into 3 parts if you ever want to mark this it's actually an outline from a guy named von roberts but he says this first part exodus chapter 1 through 18 is the god who delivers exodus chapter 1 through 18 the god who delivers Exodus chapter 19 through 24 is the God who demands. He gives his law. And Exodus chapter 25 through 40 is the God who draws near. So the God who delivers, the God who demands, and the God who draws near. You have this picture that we see of God who desires to redeem or deliver his people. He wants to and does set them free. He wants His people to come into His kingdom and to be set free from Pharaoh and ultimately from sin and Satan. We also see a picture of a God who gives them a law. He's a God who wants to bless them and do good to them. He's a God who wants to rule them graciously so they might be His people under His rule and blessing. And we see... Finally, a God who wants to draw near to his people. He wants to be with them. But sin, I want you to hear this. Sin keeps God from us and us from God. He is holy. He cannot look on it. And he is just and he will not let it go unpunished. A penalty must be paid. But man cannot pay it and live. So God demonstrates that He desires to be with His people enough to sacrifice for them. He will pay the penalty we owe. That's the God we learn about in Exodus. He is the gracious Creator, promise-making, electing God of Genesis. And He is the delivering, demanding God who desires to draw near to us in Exodus. He's the redeeming, sacrificing, law-giving God. These three themes I want to look at briefly. And I want you to see how all three of these themes are fulfilled in Christ. Just see the big picture. How are they fulfilled in Christ? He was doing something very difficult among the Jews, ultimately, to paint this glorious picture of His grace and love. And I want you to see that. So the first thing I want to look at is the law. In other words, I'm going to take them in a different order than they're given. The law. God demands something of the Jews. He is a gracious lawgiver. He knows what's best for His people. That's why the law is a gift of grace. But some people say, but aren't grace... And the law radically opposed to each other. Yes, if you think that you will stand before God on judgment day and that your law keeping will be sufficient, then it's opposed to grace. That's for sure. However, if you recognize the law for its intended purposes, then it's all grace. So what are the intended purposes of the law? There's three of them, really. The first one is God gave us the law to show us our sin. He wanted to show us how sinful we are and how we needed a Savior. Paul picks up on that in Romans 7, which we'll be dealing with in quite a bit of detail here come this fall. The second one is that he gives it to us for the purpose of personal holiness so that we might grow in him. So we might know Him rightly and obey Him rightly for our good. And the third one is that He gives it to us for good government. He gives us the law so we know how to govern ourselves properly. We need to understand that our God has fulfilled, however, that whole law in Jesus. And in fact, Matthew goes to great pains. Turn, Keep your hand in Exodus Well, actually, you don't really even need to turn to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter two. I want to show you how Matthew goes to great pains to show that Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but that he was a new and better Moses, a new and better Israel. So look at Matthew chapter two. And I want you to think about the picture I just told you in Exodus. Because God in Exodus calls Israel his son. And he calls his son, what, out of Egypt. He calls the Jews out. And when he calls them out, he takes them into the water to save them. And when they come out of the water, they go through 40 days of te- or forty years of temptation in the wilderness. And then after those years, Moses goes up onto the mountain and brings down what? The law. Now, I want you to see how Matthew tries to do this. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Actually, yes. Start with verse 14. And he rose. This is speaking of Joseph, the the father of, of Jesus, and as far as his father via marriage to Mary. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So he's in Egypt. And he remained there with Jesus the child, by the way. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That phrase "out of Egypt," I called my son, is a reference to Hosea eleven one, which is talking about the fact that God called Israel as a people out of Egypt. And now he's saying Jesus, his son, is being called out of Egypt. And Jesus begins to mimic this. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, which starts to mimic what happened at the Passover, excuse me, with the Pharaoh, when he tried to kill all the male children in Israel. Pharaoh did. Exodus chapter 1 and 2. You see these pictures start to get picked up. Look at chapter 3. Jesus grows up. He comes out, and the next thing we see in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. As Egypt came, as Israel came out of Egypt and went into the water through the Red Sea. So Jesus comes out of Egypt and goes into the water. And Matthew showing this mimicking of what happened with Israel in Christ. Even more it picks up because he makes this strange statement to John. John's like, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. What's he talking about? I, Jesus says, need to do everything I've called and commanded you to do in your place. so that you will be righteous through me. And he goes on. He comes out of the water. And what happened to Israel when they came out of the Red Sea? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. And look at the mimic here in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him. Israel was tempted out there for 40 years in the wilderness. And the mimic continues. And then look at chapter 5. Because after the 40 years in the wilderness, the Jews were in front of the mountain where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus, this is He, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught. And if you read Matthew chapter 5, He then exposits the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes through and teaches the real meaning that the Jews were missing of the Ten Commandments. And he says in verse 17 this very interesting thing. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's everything in the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God is not only the gracious law giver, He is also the gracious law keeper. God's grace, in other words, provides everything that it demands. Do you hear that? God's grace provides everything that it demands. God gave the law and then God kept the law for us. A picture of the Jews in Israel when they were coming out of Egypt had no idea. They, would, they couldn't see the full fulfillment of that. They knew a Messiah was coming to fulfill it in some way. But a picture that we now see as Jesus, the true son, the true Israel, goes through everything they did does everything God commanded of them and everything God commands of us in our place. Because Adam failed to, because Israel fails to, and because we fail to. He did it for us. Second, God is graciously sacrificial. I not want to say a lawgiver. He's graciously sacrificial. Why? So he can draw near to us. God sacrifices His Son to draw near to us. Due to our violation of God's law, our guilt and corruption inherited from Adam, we are sinners and we need our sins covered. We see it first in Genesis when God kills the animals and covers Adam and Eve with them, right? See it first there. But we see this theme develop throughout Scripture. Can you put up the chart real quick, David? We see it develop throughout Scripture Is it up? No. Going to get it up? Here's the picture. First, we have God provide for a man, Abraham and Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22 provides for them. Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. God provides the sacrifice in the in a goat. Second, we have God provide for a nation. Right? First for households at the Passover and then for a nation in Leviticus 16. Right? That's not what I was getting at. And then for a nation, Leviticus 16, he provides for them. Every time, Genesis 22, a goat. In Exodus, he provides what? A lamb. In Leviticus 16, the sacrifice again is goat or lamb. And then Jesus comes. So you have for a man, Abraham and Isaac. Thank you. You have for a family, the Passover. You have for a nation, the Day of Atonement. And then when Jesus comes, you have a sacrifice for the world. When he comes and John makes this, Baptist makes this amazing statement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See that picture of progress? God does the sacrificing. God does it So he can draw near to us. He's the God who demands. And then fulfills it. And he's the God who desires to draw near to us. And meets the conditions necessary to do so. Finally. You can take that off now. Finally he's the God who wants to deliver us. He's our redeemer. You know the Exodus story. I don't know if you see this in scripture. Is really. This is going to sound like a funky word. Is paradigmatic of God's work to free us from slavery to sin. In other words, it's a paradigm. It's a picture of God freeing His people from slavery to Pharaoh is a picture of God freeing His people ultimately from slavery to sin. It's a paradigm. The Jews were in slavery to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. We're in slavery to sin and Satan. They were in slavery to a foreign kingdom the kingdom of this world, Egypt. We are also in slavery to that kingdom. God wanted to take them from that kingdom into freedom in His kingdom. And God wants to take us from that kingdom into freedom in His kingdom. He is our Redeemer, our Deliverer. We're enslaved to sin you know nobody likes this idea by the way. The Jews hated it. Jesus came to him to them. Look at John chapter 8. Jesus comes to them and we'll explore this theme a, a lot in the fall. But Jesus comes to them and is teaching and some of them start to believe and in verse 31 of John 8 it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him believed in him, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Wrong. First of all, you were enslaved to Egypt. (laughs) This is just pride welling up. How is it that you say you will become free? What do you mean we're in slavery? We're not in slavery to anybody. How do you say we'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The point is that as unbelievers, we're ensla- as unbelievers, we were enslaved to sin. We may want to change, but we can't. Did you hear that? Your unbelieving friends and relatives may want to change, but they can't. Boy, that's the opposite of everything we hold dear in America, isn't it? Who are you saying we're slaves to our sin, that we can't change? You can't. You're slaves. You only get freedom in Christ. It's the only way change ever happens. You know what? As believers, while we've been freed, Paul says in Romans 6, we often run right back to that slave master. Run right back to him. Please enslave us again. We're like Israel after God delivered them. What'd they do when they were out in the wilderness? God had saved them from slavery to Egypt, and what'd they do? They said, following the Lord isn't making us that happy. Not as happy as we thought for sure. Let's just go back to Egypt. That's us. God frees us from sin and then we want to run back to Egypt. We want to get right back into slavery. Why? Why'd they want to do it? Why do we want to do it? Same reason. We jump into Christianity thinking that our external circumstances will change. I've tried everything else to bring change in my life. Everything. I may as well see if God can do it. Because nothing else has worked. And the problem we discover is that our circumstances don't necessarily get any better when we believe in Jesus. And that the primary change God is trying to work is not our external circumstances, but change in our own hearts. You see, we're daydreamers, aren't we? Is daydream great imaginations? And we think to ourselves, if only this was different then. If only we had a better house then. If only we had a newer car. Then if only my husband would mature past adolescence, (laughs) then if only my wife was more like fill in the blank, then if only my parents were, then if only I had the job I really wanted, then we think a change in our external circumstances is what's needed. And God didn't deliver. So we might as well run back to the old slave master. When God knows what we ultimately need is an internal change. We're slaves to sin and we need freedom from it. God in the person of Jesus Christ has provided the freedom we need. If you abide in the Son, you'll be free indeed. You see, God is the God who gives us graciously a law and fulfills it for us. We see that picture in Christ. He is the God who desires to draw near to us and meets the conditions so he can do so through sacrificing his own son, Jesus. He is the God who desires to deliver us and does so in Christ. Do you notice something about all three of those characteristics of God? Do you want to know something about God's creation? All things were created by Him and through Him. Who? Christ. you want to know something about His grace and mercy? We receive that through who? Christ. Election. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. In Him. In Christ. The law. Fulfilled in Christ. Sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in Christ. Deliverance. You want to be free? If you're in the Son, you'll be free indeed. See, the whole picture is a picture of Jesus. And what God's saying is, well, you can't see all the details While you can't see the picture, and you don't know everything I'm doing and why I'm doing it, let me tell you this. It all points you back to my son. Look at him. Look at him. Be satisfied in him. Find joy in him. Trust him. Know that he is good. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to exalt you and worship you. Through your word, we pray that we would see the great picture that you are painting of Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. Pray that we would look to him in all things. Pray that you would be exalted through us looking to him. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to. T-